Hello and welcome to Theodisc, the WTC podcast where we create a place for theological discussions that are accessible and hopefully stimulating for your faith and understanding of God. I'm your host, Kenny Innes, and on today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Freddie Headley. Freddie is the Director of Undergraduate Studies at WTC, where he teaches Biblical Studies, focusing mostly on the Old Testament and Biblical Hebrew. Freddie is also a former student with WTC, where he obtained his MA in Kingdom Theology, and he now holds a PhD in Hebrew Bible from King's College, London. In fact, in our conversation, we're going to springboard from Freddie's PhD work in Lamentations to talk about the right to reply that's provided for God's people and how this can provoke us to rethink the place of lament and being honest with God in our church communities and personal journeys. I always enjoy talking to Freddie and I hope you will enjoy our conversation too. Freddie, welcome to the Theodisc podcast. It's great to have you. Great to be here. Thank you. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing really well. Thank you. Good, good. Well, we are going to have a, a discussion over this um, next half an hour or so um, about Lamentations and digging a little bit into that book and what it might have to say to us today in our own relationships with God. I found it interesting. I was reading in, uh, Rowan Parry and Heath Thomas's book, Great is Thy Faithfulness. They they said lamentations has never had a place of honor at the table of Christian spirituality. It's not one of those texts that everyone wants to converse with. It's one of those texts people feel uncomfortable around and not quite sure what to do with. So with that in mind today, we are going to try to converse with the book and see how it might might inform our spirituality. That sound good? It sounds great, yes. Brilliant. Now, before we get into that, I'm going to spring on you three questions that I am asking all of our first-time uh, guests right. just to get to know you a little bit more. It's really interesting to hear about what peaks, what's peaking our interest at the moment, what's new, the things that we're kind of exploring, but I think what's sometimes more telling is the things that people return to, some of the constants in their life. So three things I want to ask you about, things that you return to. The first one is, what is a book that you return to? A book that I return to. So um, I would love to have a kind of really scholarly, spiritual answer. And I I will reach for one to try and avoid saying the book that I love. Um, But the book that, honestly, that I love and that I've read more than any other outside of the Bible in my life is The Wind in the Willows. And I've read it to my kids and um, it just captivated me as a child and it and as a result it kind of carries this um it, it's like it carries its own bucket of relaxation with it so as soon as you open it and you're on the riverside it just takes me there so much as i would love to be philosophical and thoughtful and, and clever and erudite um it's it's ratty and moly for me well maybe the wind in the wheels contains its own philosophical ideas um oh, not to my shame, I've never actually read the book. I always remember the wonderful stop motion animation mm. show that they had when I was young. Which is also it. wonderful. Yeah. Great. Um, a food that you return to or a meal? No, I have um, a 
an enduring memory that has lasted with me since I was about eight years old. I think the first time as a family, we went away abroad on holiday. My, my parents took us to Italy. And on the first night in Italy, I had tortellini and tomato and basil sauce, really kind of basic Italian meal, but it blew my socks off. And, um, and so I eat that regularly and we sort of developed our in-house family recipe which is incredibly unhealthy but very delicious so that's my go-to comfort food sounds great and finally a place that you return to whenever possible austria wow so western austria in the tyrol in the mountains as high up as possible walking up and down up and down slopes that's that's um that's where you'll find me if i can get there great ever otherwise skied? anywhere i can find a guitar in a corner and people leaving me alone <laughs> <laughs> oh brilliant well, thank you that's great you ever go skiing in austria i've do you know i've been skiing no i haven't i've been skiing once in my life which was when i was about 10 years old and it's the reason i've never been skiing since because <laughs> it was on a dry slope ski you know that kind of rope stuff that you ski on I do. in Kent and I was put in a beginner's lesson and walking between the sort of changing rooms and the beginning of the lesson on the flat bit of the slope I fell over and the the teacher of the class just said if you can't get up you can't ski and I just sat there for half an hour so that was my only experience of skiing and I've never been since I have since known many people who've gone saying skiing is the best thing in the world and have come back with fewer bones than they went with so <laughs> I haven't had a great deal of incentive. Well, I'm, I'm really sorry to have brought that up. <laughs> <laughs> a traumatic experience from your childhood, being sat there not able to get up. Well, that is maybe a good entree, that story, into talking, talking about the book of Lamentations. Yeah. Uh, now, now, you've just completed um, your PhD. I have, yeah. Maybe just share a little bit about that journey and, and where that took you. Yeah, so the PhD was looking at the Book of Lamentations, but it was looking particularly at the, at the theme of covenant. And it kind of came about because I'd done uh, my MA with WTC a few years ago. And um, one of the assignments, uh, which is still one of the assignments on the MA for the Old Testament, is to pick a book. Uh, and write a kind of summary overview of the theology of that book. And so um, I went looking for a book that I knew the least, and the book I landed on was Lamentations. And uh, for the reason that lots of us don't know it very well, which is, you know, it's uncomfortable reading, and it's little. It's one of those books that seems to move around. It never seems to be in the same place twice, like Zephaniah and Haggai and those all those little books. But um, I, I went and spent some time with this and just fell in love with this book. And so I wrote uh, a short paper outlining it, um, which then um, very fortunately uh, was published. And so when I was then looking to do a PhD, I'd actually had a, a different idea for a PhD topic, um, but I had um, sent that article around ahead of interviews with different universities to as a kind of sample of my work. And uh, and I had one interview at King's College London, which is where I ended up doing my PhD, um, and where my supervisor-to-be um, sort of summarily dismissed the idea that I'd come with and shown why it probably wasn't the best project uh, to come and do a PhD in, rightly so. 
um, but wanted to talk to me about um, my paper about lamentations because I'd made a comment and it wasn't the thrust of the argument. I'd just made a, a passing comment and moved on about the relationship between lamentations and covenants. And the, and the point was, um, it's, it's a wonderful thing that in a covenant relationship with God, you get to cry out to him and you get to accuse and you get to be angry and you get to be hurt. And you know that in the security of a covenant relationship, he's not going anywhere. You're not going to fall out of this relationship because of irreverence or unfaithfulness or anything. It's a part of a faithful relationship. So I made that comment and he challenged me on it and said, well, how would you, you know, in terms of your, your scholarly read of this book, how would you defend Lamentations talking about covenant? Because he never mentions covenant. Um, and so we teased that out together for a little bit and, and you're saying, well, I think you should seriously consider um, taking that on as a, as a project. And I went away and was really captured by the thought and excited by the idea of, of looking at that and taking on that challenge. Um, and so I started a PhD looking at covenant and lamentations, knowing that the one thing I could be sure about is that lamentations doesn't talk about covenant. So it was... Um, but it was a really kind of wonderful time, you know, sort of, I had to be ready to challenge my own assumptions that I'd brought to it, just, you know, covenants everywhere, because covenant is what relationship with God looks like, challenge those kind of assumptions to say, well, is that really what this text is talking about? And to think very carefully about well, what does it mean to be in covenant with God? What does that um what does that relationship look like? What does it involve? What is what's on both sides of that relationship? And do we see those things emerging in the Book of Lamentations? And kind of at the at the core of the covenants that you find in the Old Testament is, um, on the one hand, you have passages in the Old Testament such as Deuteronomy, such as in Exodus, where the covenant is formed and founded largely on the basis of expectations and, and responsibilities that are placed on Israel. So they have to remain faithful to Yahweh. They have to not worship other gods. They have to um, uh, worship him only. And, you know, so there is, um, and there is a, uh, a series of laws that are attached to that that govern whether or not they are uh, living faithfully to Yahweh. And yet there are other passages like covenant with Abraham, covenant with David, where promises are made over the whole people of Israel that don't rest on the responsibility of Israel at all, but rest on Yahweh to fulfil those promises. Most notably, uh, perhaps with, with David, there will always be someone on the throne. Your throne will, will never die. And whilst Israel's going through a time where everything's going broadly well under the throne of David, um, there's no problem, even under Solomon, and Solomon has great moments and low moments, but the security of, of covenant with God is pretty secure. Following Solomon, there is a civil war, and suddenly Israel breaks into two nations, the northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah, and they go on very different paths in terms of their faithfulness to Yahweh. But ultimately, both of them end up in a situation where they are repeatedly unfaithful. To Yahweh. And so according to the terms of the Deuteronomic covenant, um, above uh, particularly, but also in Exodus and elsewhere, according to the terms of that covenant, there are consequences. And the consequences are that you're breaking faith and breaking relationship with God. You lose relationship with him and all the consequences that go with that. And that is what happens. But in the same moment, what's happening 
is that the promise that God had made to David, that God had made to Abraham, that you would always have this land, that there would always be a king on the throne. Suddenly, these promises are no longer seem to be being kept. And so you're in this place of tension for the first time where it, there seems to be, on the one hand, covenant says, well, of course, this was always going to happen when the Assyrians invade in the north and the Babylonians invade in the south. What were you expecting was going to happen? I told you, literally told you this was going to happen. And on the other hand, you've got, but God, you had said you would never break this throne. You would never take the land away from us. And look at where we are. We're in Babylon and we have no king and we have no land and, and we have no law. So there is this tension of this should always have happened, but this should never have happened. And lamentate, and that's right at the core of covenant. Right? So there's a, there's a, um, a tension that emerges in, in covenant theology for Israel. Um, and Lamentations uses that, that dispute and that, that tension as a way of speaking out and expressing the pain and the anxiety and the confusion, but also the hope and the faith um, of the lamenting poet who cries out sometimes with repentance and cries out sometimes with accusation against God for how could you break your promise and other times, but I know that I sinned and other times, but I'm just hurting. None of that matters. You know, there is this sort of multi-dimensional outcry and it does seem very often to be founded on that, that tension of covenant. And there is almost this sense of, you know, if I give, if I say covenant is any one of these things, it's like I'm saying that's covenant and that's not. Or, you know, so actually naming covenant would be would be unhelpful in, in the midst of this outcry. So, yeah, so that, that was my project and trying to get to grips with how Lamentations uses um, its poetry to, to convey that. Now, I guess for for many listening, we've already broached um, or maybe entered into this the feeling of tension in what we've spoken about already. We, we've kind of you've said in the conversation that there's this almost like a permission, or at least lamentations um, describes a people who are angry at God and are able to express that to God as part of a covenant relationship with him. On the other hand, we, with our hindsight and our vastly superior spirituality and closeness to God <laughs> and the figures in the scriptures, we can kind of be a look at it a little bit condescendingly and say, well, of course, we, we know the story. You didn't hold up your end of the bargain. W what right do you have to complain? Um, and and uh, I guess maybe we can begin to kind of unpack a little bit, maybe particularly the beginning of the book at Lamentations, just, and just kind of talk about what do we do with that tension that we find there? Yeah, and, you know, some scholars have, have taken that tension and essentially rubbed it out. So, you know, they, they, they will find a, a line of, of repentance, you know, but, but I have sinned in Lamentations 1. And there was, and they will use that as a kind of anchor point for interpreting the rest of the of the poem, or even the rest of the book, and say, "Well, no, well, this is fundamentally a repentant person. Everything else is revolving around that repentance, and and so it really is about Israel have sinned, Judah, more specifically, in the case of Lamentations, has sinned, um, and and yet there is there's hope because of their 
repentance, but it's it doesn't really um, pay attention, I don't think, enough to some of the way that the, the poetry itself has been written to resist that kind of interpretation. So, you know, you'll get a, a statement from Zion who's given a voice. Zion is the kind of personified city of Jerusalem. And she is given a voice in, in these poems to cry out on her own behalf. Um, but she doesn't even agree with herself. And she certainly doesn't seem to agree with some of the things that have been said before she speaks out. So one of the things that um, that you notice very early on in, in reading really all of Lamentations, but Lamentations one really puts it front and centre in your, in your face as a reader, is, is the way that the poetry is used as a... As, as a mechanism to navigate what the poet is trying to say. So the, the kind of first thing that lots of scholars will notice that is not easy to see, you can't really see it in English, so you only really get to see it if you peel it back and look at the Hebrew, is that the poem is an acrostic. And indeed, the whole book pretty much is an acrostic. There's, there are five poems in Lamentations, and to one degree or other, they've all got some kind of acrostic quality to them and actually it's different in each poem and so there's a you know there's a sense of um, intensification as you read through the book to begin with because there's a um, there's each verse or each kind of stanza in, in poem one begins with a different letter of the alphabet a successive letter of the alphabet that continues in verse two or in chapter two although in that poem the order is changed of the alphabet in, in one letter, one of the letters is in a different order. Um, but then in chapter three, you have this kind of striking intensification where instead of every stanza beginning with a different letter, that's broken down into every line. So every stanza, every line starts with the same letter and then the next stanza starts with the next letter and so forth. And so you have this kind of sense of intensification, but then in chapter four, it seems to fall away. So you, you return to um, each stanza starting with uh, with a different letter, but now there are only there are, there are fewer lines. There are two lines instead of three in each of in each of those stanzas. Um, and then in the final poem, there's no obvious um, sort of direct acrostic going on at all. But there are 22 verses. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. So you still have this sense of there was an acrostic there, but it seems to have fallen away. And and there are a number of these sort of devices, and and there are different ideas that have been raised about why Lamentations does that. So acrostics are often seen as being maybe a, a kind of teaching aid, a mnemonic device, um, which I don't know how convincing that is really, because when it's every stanza starts with the next, uh, next letter of the alphabet, you've got several lines in the middle to remember. So I'm not really sure that works in Lamentations case more commonly you'll see an argument uh, that it's used to to convey some kind of completeness so there's a the a to z of pain is a, a, often a, a phrase that you'll hear ascribed to to lamentations and that's you know works pretty well but it perhaps undermines or underestimates rather just how many different emotions there are going on in lamentations it isn't really an a to z of pain it's it's an A to Z of pain and joy and confusion and hope and appeal. You know, there's lots of different things going on. Um, it's not really an A to Z of any one thing. More convincing, I think, is that it's a controlling device. And this does seem to be something, I think, that you find all the way through Lamentations, is that almost all of the 
um, of the literary devices that are used, um, which kind of range from acrostic through to the meter that is used um, and the way that sort of patterns of words are used. And they, um, they appear to want to control what is for the, the topic of the poems, a completely chaotic situation. And so an acrostic is applied to try and bring some control to this completely uncontrolled world where nothing makes sense. And there's no theology that makes any sense anymore. These are The poet is living in Jerusalem in the midst of a city that has been completely decimated. He's surrounded by dead bodies. There's famine, there is disease, there is um, desperation. There is uh, just a sense of the, the end of all things as he sits in the rubble. Um, and in the midst of this, there's some desperate need for control, but that control breaks down. It's unable to sustain itself through the poems. And so just looking at the, the acrostic all on its own, it's there and fully stable in, in poem one. In poem two, the alphabet isn't quite in the same order. In poem three, the, the, the verse is fragmented so that in now each, each line is somehow acrostic rather than just the verse in poem four, the verses are now fewer in length, uh, fewer lines in length. In verse five, it seems to all but have disappeared. And this kind of sense of you can try and control this, but it just will not be controlled. It will not be contained. And that kind of subplot that exists just from the poet's artistry is a, um, is a very beautiful thing. And the other thing that really stands out is the way that um, there are grammatical shifts in the poems. You know, there are times where um, so the you know Lamentations one opens with um, how she sits alone. So you have this sense of of a poet looking over the city, who is personified as a woman in grief, who is a mother and a, a queen who has lost her consort, and um, and you're watching from afar, and you're watching as a third person. So there is third person discourse that opens up the poems. And then halfway through, roughly, the poem, suddenly there's a shift from third-person speech to first-person speech, and suddenly you realise you're hearing the city answer. And the poet has given a voice to the city, and so now you have to make a decision as to whether the first verse, first voice was, was the poet and the second voice the city, which doesn't make an enormous amount of sense. So now you've got the poet giving two different voices, but actually the third-person voice doesn't agree with himself. So there are times where he's just devastated and can't um, get his head around what has been lost and how specifically the promises of the covenant to do with the, the worship at the temple and the festivals, um, how they have been lost, how the king has been lost. He can't get his head around that. And then on other times, he's completely level-headed and says, well, this is because of the sin of the people. Of course this has happened. So there is this tension that you see, that covenant tension beginning to emerge within the third person. And so there is this sense that you've got more voices that you can quite handle, that you can quite pin down and identify, crying out, all with different perspectives. And that continues through the book. And there are voices, sometimes they're individuals, sometimes it's the community as a whole. And sometimes those voices cry out in accusation against God, how could you do this thing to us? Sometimes they're crying out just in lament of, Lord, please rescue us, this is awful. Sometimes they're crying out, in repentance, Lord, we're sorry that we did this thing. 
and different voices cry out at different times from different perspectives. And you find that it is, it, it is the poet's way of making sense of this chaos, is to recognize that going on in him is this turmoil of confusion and hope and repentance and devastation and anger and frustration and hurt, and all of it is there. So he gives a voice to all of it. Now, what is wonderful, and the reason why any of that matters, because this could just be brilliant poetry and we move on, but it isn't just brilliant poetry. This is brilliant poetry that we affirm God has breathed life into, that we affirm is drawn into our scripture and so therefore is representative of God's voice and is representative of a good model of what he wants Israel's voice to sound like. And it is drawn into the worship life of Israel. So Lamentations is sung at a festival every year, the whole book. It is itself a, a book of worship. Every word in it is worship. And that kind of moment of shifting away from how does a poet sitting in the rubble cope emotionally with what he's seeing and give expression to it, that shift from that to God saying, this is a good way of discipling. This is a good way of worshipping is a really dramatical, dramatic shift in our understanding of exactly the value of lament and the way that God welcomes the pushback, the way that God welcomes the, the complaint. He welcomes your anger. He doesn't, he's not afraid of you saying to him, as is said in Lamentations 2, you've behaved like my enemy. You know, that is not considered an, a faithless thing to say. It is heard by God when you're in the place of pain as the words of worship, which is a, just the most remarkable gift because I don't know how many people come to church and they hear us singing about the joy and the triumph and hands in the air, but they've come from a place of pain and they, they just cannot sing those words. But they could read Lamentations and knowing that that is worship and that God will hear those words of worship as worship, they could say those. You know, it's an incredibly precious gift that God has given to the church by adopting those words, never correcting those words, never stamping on them in the book and stepping in and saying, well, that's not right. That theology is a bit off. You just don't get it. You're seeing the perspectives all a bit wrong. Actually, you know, it's not that they don't understand. It's the exact opposite. It's that they really are understanding exactly what a real relationship with God looks like. And in the place of pain, this is what it looks like. This is faithfulness, not faithlessness. And yet the wisdom literature causes us a lot of problems, it seems, because it will not neatly resolve. You know, we, we don't we don't always know what to do with, for instance, the imprecatory psalms. And we, we certainly lamentations is not something you hear read over the pulpit or today's reading is from Lamentations. We don't mm. get that a lot. And I wonder if we, if it is finished, rings loudly in, in our minds, meaning, and, and somehow that translates us, and therefore we, we must not acknowledge and that there are still difficulties because Christ has done it all. So how do we navigate that wanting to be faithfully, faithfully expressing the goodness of what Jesus has done for us and yet still pulling from lamentations and treasuring that and entering into this world where we too have a right to reply in those moments of, of difficulty. Mm. Do you know, there's a, there's a moment in the Old Testament, which is in the Psalms, in a lament Psalm, where 
you have a phrase which is not it is finished but it isn't half really close to it and it's the last line of psalm 22 and the line actually is he has done it but it's really similar and so if, i don't know um for those who are listening who know psalm 22 you'll you'll know where i'm heading with this thought psalm 22 is the psalm that jesus quotes on the cross you know if we're talking about wanting to live in a world where we live in the context of triumph and victory which theologically we do, but we live in the now and the not yet. And um, but but if we want uh, to root that theology well, we root it on the cross. That is the moment of triumph and victory. In the moment of Jesus's death, Jesus is singing a lament psalm, and he's singing a lament psalm which has a teaching purpose to it. I think to a degree, which is that so he very famously cries out, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" And uh, this is the opening line of Psalm 22. If you go and read Psalm 22, the first half of it is um, is a very deep lament. It is um, despairingly low and, um, and is agonizing in its words, but it is also a really striking description of the cross. You know, there, there are clothes that are torn and separated by lot. You know, there are um, there's a, a physical description of a body hanging and um, and withering away in pain, and uh, and and you find yourself um, to a Christian eye uh, reading the crucifixion, and so you find yourself thinking, why did Jesus, with his dying breath, sing out these words? And we and we ought to remember, psalms are sung, lamentations is sung. It is quite likely that when Jesus said those words he was aiming at singing and I, and that to me all on its own is a beautiful thought that on the cross Jesus sings um, but that he sings these words so why does he sing them well he may sing them because in the moment of greatest victory is also the moment of greatest pain for him and in the moment of greatest pain even in the context of victory the appropriate and right thing to do is to say to God exactly how you feel because that is what a real genuine relationship does. And a real genuine relationship is not threatened by the kind of risk of irreverence of someone saying, I hurt and you might just have something to do with it. You know, there isn't a, a sense of threat to that relationship there. There's no sense of threat, I don't think, in, 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 in Jesus on the cross. He's not feeling like my relationship with God is, is, is under threat here. And so, you know, maybe it's because the the poem just expresses the pain really well. But it's really hard not to think that it's also because the poem really expresses so very literally what he's going through. And that if he can just get out the first word, he's surrounded by priests. He's surrounded by faithful Jews. He's surrounded by people that know this psalm. And it is just possible, and it's, this is an very difficult thing to trace down but these days this psalm is a psalm that's sung at passover this is a passover this event of the cross so we don't know how far back that tradition goes but just imagine for a second just do some bad theology for a minute and just imagine for a second that that psalm does have that tradition that far back in which case he's singing that psalm to people who've sung that psalm this morning and so they may just remember as they watch his clothes shared by lot and divided by a lot as they watch him dying exactly as that psalm says they may just remember that my goodness me there's a real connection here they may make that connection and if they make that connection 
they may just get to the second half of the psalm in their head. So Jesus says the first line, expecting them to fill in the gap. The second half of that psalm is a victory psalm that talks about God not turning his face away from the people, not turning his face away from the one in suffering, but using the one who is suffering to save all. And it's the salvation psalm, and it concludes with he has done it, this statement of victory. It is finished, the statement of victory. In the context of that, we have Jesus lamenting in pain. We have Jesus teaching. We also have Jesus, I think, on this day singing this psalm, um, which is a worship psalm. And in which case, he's also, with his dying breath, leading worship. And so you have this sort of extraordinary model of when in the place of pain, what do you do? Well, what you do is you don't lose sight of the victory that you're a part of, but you don't just pretend the pain isn't there. You don't try and force yourself into good ways of thinking and right and honourable ways of thinking. You tell God exactly how you're feeling and you anticipate that lament will do the work that lament is designed to do, which is to provide a path towards healing. Lament really does two things in the Psalms and in Lamentations. The first thing it does is it makes space for God to come into the suffering. It doesn't rely on you getting out of the suffering before you find God. It's not a sort of a, a reach for faith. It's you inviting God in and God and finding God in the place of suffering. But in the place of suffering, it is then allowing God to lead you out. And that is consistent throughout. You know, you see this in the wisdom literature as well. You know, that's, loved, that's essentially the direction of the book of Job. And so this kind of sense of lament is, um, is a pathway to healing, I think is an incredibly important thing for us to remember, because I don't know um, what, uh, what your kind of immediate church worship environment is like, but I've been in several church worship environments over the years, and lament has never really characterised any of them. Yeah. And yet, it is just the most powerful thing that you can give individuals and groups of people a voice in the place of worship to say to God exactly how they feel. And it is received as worship, not as complaint, as worship. And when a community gathers around those people, whether they feel it or whether they don't, it is an extraordinary kind of a, aggressive move towards unity to say that we're going to assume that there is suffering in this room as well as joy. And so we are going to lament as well as praise and we're going to lament in the expectation that it brings us into the place of healing and praise. And we're going to praise in the expectation that it enables us then to stand alongside those who are suffering and lament with them. And that then is creates a healthy environment which reflects that mixture of lament and praise that Jesus brings on the cross. So I, I think it's I think lament is is um, a vital aspect of the victory of God. That's really helpful. And um, yeah, I think we're, we're blessed with lots of, in the context of sung worship, we're blessed with many amazing songs mm. in our kind of contemporary world. I do sometimes wonder if some of them don't rush from that place of the complaint and lament straight to the, to the triumph. But I think that is changing. I think we're seeing more space being created for people. Yeah, I agree. I agree. But it's interesting. This is a, you know, we haven't got time to talk about it, but had we had time, we could look more at Psalm 22 because there is a feature of Psalm 22. And I know we're talking about lamentations, but 
there's a feature of Psalm 22, which I think is quite special as um, in its own context, uh, which is that it follows broadly um, a kind of pattern of lament. Lament is also a genre of writing. You know? So there's a, there's a pattern of lament that kind of begins with calling out to God and then making a complaint and then making an appeal and then comes a statement of confidence and trust, which leads to praise. You know, it's a sort of set pattern. And if you want to see it working line by line perfectly, go and read Psalm 13. You know, that's a, a, always sort of seen as the archetypal perfect lament psalm. Psalm 22 um, has all of those features, but not in that order. And But what you find is a, is a poet who is in the place of pain, expresses his pain, and then jumps quickly to praise. So he jumps over bringing the full complaint. He jumps over bringing the, the appeal. He jumps straight to a statement of trust. And that statement of trust leads him down a path of oh, but I know that you're good because you've always done this in the past. And that just inevitably leads him to say, oh, you did it to them, but not to me. And it brings him straight back down to the ground again. And he goes through this a couple of times. He attempts to jumpstart the process. And rather than allowing, slowing down and allowing the lament to actually go through its proper process, which he gets to about a third of the way through the psalm, and he finally comes to the ground where he brings the fullness of his complaint he doesn't hold anything back. He holds things back up until that point. And it's only when he brings the fullness of his complaint that he is then able to say to God, Lord, I really just desperately want you to change it. And then he remembers how God has changed it in the past. And then he remembers that that's the reason why he can still expect him to change it now. And then that leads on to this extraordinary second half of expectation and hope and praise yeah. and salvation. So it's a it's a very good kind of precedent for exactly what you're saying, which is you know, that value of slowing down, allowing lament to take its proper place, not jumping too quickly to praise for fear of the lament being faithless, but actually having the confidence that the lament is an extraordinary expression of intimacy with God that will take us into the place of praise. Yep. Yes. And he discovers the Lord has not turned his face from me. And, yes. um, you know, I love that. And maybe we, maybe we should in the future do a podcast together about Psalm 22. There's lots, lots to be said there. But mm. I think this has been a really helpful discussion, um, you know, about lamentations and this idea that perhaps faithfulness to Christ involves the bringing of our pain and our confusion and the things that we, we cannot resolve ourselves, bringing them as a, as a complaint to God. And instead of finding a hand held up against us we actually find that we're invited into intimacy with the one who blesses those who mourn yeah. and um really grateful for you unpacking that for us and hopefully those listening can be encouraged to take some of those brave steps of opening their hearts fully to god and not hiding mm. anything from him and discovering his grace yeah, and his mercy and his comfort yep well, thank you, Freddie, for being with us on the podcast. And uh, you will come back, I do hope. I will definitely come back. Yes, it's been great to be with you. Great. Cheers. Thanks. Thank you. Well, looking at Lamentations as a collection of five poems certainly makes this book very interesting. Thank you to Freddie for showing us how Lamentations can enrich our worship in the church today. 
Next time, Kenny will be joined by Tobias Sigenthaler, who lectures at WTC on the course Reading the Gospels, Scripture and Our Mission to the World. Tobias is from Switzerland and is currently working on his PhD thesis, which focuses on how the Gospel of Luke picks up patterns from the Joseph narratives in Genesis to tell the story about Jesus. If you enjoyed any of the episodes of Theodisc or have any comments or feedback, why not send us an email at podcast at wtctheology.org.uk. We'd love to hear your thoughts as we get our podcast going. Thank you for listening to episode 3 of Theodisc. Join us for episode 4 when Kenny and Tobias Siegenthaler will be discussing reading the Bible as narrative. Bye for now. Thank you.